Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat on the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in him that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We're going through the gospel of Mark right now. We'll be beginning into Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and we'll just pick up there. Um, And so uh, I I was thinking about this late last night. Um, I was eating a late dinner by myself. Uh, praying about church this morning, uh, and it, and it just kind of dawned on me that if you want an ironclad uh, sort of proof that God exists and that God is good, then all you need to do is just try some fish tacos from Trader Joe's. Um, like I had them for dinner last night, and they're like one of my favorite things for us to eat from Trader Joe's. And the thing that makes these fish tacos so great is not just the fact that they're cheap uh, from Trader Joe's, but the way that the ingredients just sort of gel together. You've got these breaded, baked fish that you, you sort of bake them to a light crisp. Uh, you've got cabbage, uh, which is like whatever by itself. Uh, but then you add this sort of like zesty cilantro dressing to it and then cram it all on top of a, a sweet like corn tortilla. Warm it up and it, it becomes all toaster, toasty and just, and just comes together real, real nicely. Uh, Well, Mark, the author of this passage, has done in our text is is, kind of similar. We're going to see how Jesus absolutely just transforms the lives of both a young girl and an older woman. And Mark folds one story into the other story. It's almost like the flavor of the inner story adds zest to the outer story. They're meant to be read together. They're meant to be taken in together as a single appreciated whole. And so uh, both stories in, in this passage are about fear and faith. They're both about fear and faith and how Jesus takes us from the one and brings us to the other. So like, what do you do when you're, when you're worried about how things are going to pan out for you? When you're kind of scared of that, what do you do when you're worried about how things will pan out for you? Or, or what do you do when, when all feels, feels hopeless? How does God bring us hope when we're confronted with these thoughts? And so we're going to walk through three points this morning in our text, uh, beginning in verse 21. We're going to look at how our fears are exposed, our desperate need. 
Secondly, we're going to look at how Jesus moves us from fear to faith. And lastly, we're going to look at the unexpected nature of faith in Jesus. Let's take care of that first one. Our fears expose our desperate need. Read verse 21 with me in Mark 5. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now, Jesus at this point, he's been going back and forth on a mission. We've been reading about that mission in the gospel of Mark. He's been going back and forth on a mission. That mission is to declare the good news, that God's kingdom is here. That's his mission, to declare the good news that God's kingdom is here and to display that reality through the miracles that he's performing. So he's been healing people. He's been exercising uh, demonic forces and he's been teaching in the synagogues in ways that just kind of school the religious scribes and amaze everyone else. And the word is getting out and crowds of people are flocking to him. That's what we're reading in verse 21. Now go on to verse 22 with me. It says, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, when Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, who is this Jairus guy? Who is this Jairus guy, and why did he throw himself at Jesus' feet? Um, You need to know who this guy is. We're told that he's a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue. That basically means that he was responsible for the oversight of the synagogue. He was responsible for the oversight of the place of worship. You don't get that role unless you're educated and unless you're well-respected. And once you have that role as an educated, well-respected man, then uh, your status only increases. And so that tells us that this Jairus guy is part of the higher class of society. He's part of the higher class of people among the Jews in that region. That's Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. But remember, Jesus, he's kind of got a bit of a complicated relationship with the synagogue, doesn't he? Jesus' relationship with the synagogue is complicated at best because we see before this chapter that Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue, to synagogue, preaching and teaching the good news of God's kingdom. And he actually got kicked out of most of these synagogues because of the way that he sort of threatened the status quo of the religious establishment. You know, we saw how Jesus touched a leper, somebody that the religious elite considered an outcast. Jesus touched a leper, showing us that God cares not just about physical needs, but also about our emotional needs. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, offending the religious leaders of his day with such a display of of scandalous grace. We saw his voice has the power to command the sea and the demons, unlike the religious leaders did. And we see that Jesus forgives. He forgives a paralytic of his sins, showing us that our deepest problem, our main problem is not our physical suffering, but our sin our spiritual state. And in all of this, we've seen again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark, in all of this, Jesus is sort of flipping the whole traditionalist religious structure of the day on its head. He exposed how they got it all wrong and how the religious leaders were missing the point again and again and again. And so the synagogue leaders, they were not Jesus' fans. 
They were not Jesus stands. They were critics of him. They, they did not like him. They were creeping on Jesus at this point, plotting to thwart his mission, and eventually they would be the ones that sent him to the cross. So like I said, Jesus' relationship with the synagogue, it's, it's, it's complicated at best. And so now where is Jairus, this guy, in the middle of all this? Where is Jairus, uh, ruler of the synagogue, and why does he throw himself at Jesus? You see, in, under, under normal circumstances, Jairus would want to keep a distance between he and Jesus. But, but when you're desperate, when you're, when you're fearful, when you've got nowhere else to go, then, then those things don't matter. And why is Jairus fearful? fearful? Why is he afraid? We see in this text that the reason that he's afraid, the reason that he's, he's fearful, he's afraid of losing his little girl. His little girl is dying. Death is at her door. And I, 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 want you to, I want you to feel sort of the emotion in this man's desperation sort of underneath the text here. Like you get this sense that this man is willing to do anything for his daughter. He's willing to do anything for his daughter, which is something that I can relate to because I would do anything for my daughter. Right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a protector and defender. Like anyone who's known me for more than a few years knows that about me. But man, when, when my daughter was born, like that protective impulse just kind of hit overdrive. And you get this sense that Jairus has that kind of relationship with his daughter. You get this sense, you feel it, that Jairus finds a greater sense of identity, not in being a ruler of the synagogue, but being a daddy of a little girl. He loves her. He wants to protect her, to save her. And so he comes to Jesus. And, then, and look at what he says. In verse, uh, read verse 22 again with me. One of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. And notice he doesn't say, my daughter might die. He says that she's at the point of death. She's about to die. And he asked Jesus, please come, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now this is what desperate faith looks like. This is what desperate faith looks like. It's costly. It's risky or risky. Jairus put all on the line here. He put everything on the line here. He's now bowing before the feet of Jesus, the one that his religious overlords called a blasphemer. He's risking it all. But that's, that's what faith is about, isn't it? That's what faith is all about. That's what faith does. It risks it all. It loosens our grip on all of our other claims to comfort and righteousness, and it grabs hold of the person and the work of Jesus. Let me ask you, where in your life, where in your life are you called to costly faith? Where in your life are you called to risk in faith in Jesus? Where are you being called to risky faith in the face of your fears, in the face of your worries and anxieties? 
Where you called to live, not for the status quo of what others expect from you, but instead to live for Christ, to grab a hold of him as your true hope and savior. And then you got to love now how, how Mark describes Jesus' immediate response to this man's plea. Look at it in verse 24. It says, and then he, Jesus, went with him. He went with him. And I, 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 I just love the, the, the simplicity of that. Just the rad simplicity of that. Jairus falls before Jesus, and with mercy and compassion, Jesus responds, I'm in. <laughs> Let's do this. He went with him. And then it says, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, this leads us into our second point. We see how Jesus moves us from fear to faith. From fear to faith. So Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home to Jairus' house with a throng of people following after, right? Like undoubtedly this group of people, this crowd of people was full of, of, of all kinds of people with needs, with wants, with desires of their own. And you got to imagine what it must have been like for Jairus at this moment. He's probably so stoked that Jesus of all these people is entertaining his request. And Jairus is probably eager with anticipation. He's excited, but then they get interrupted. They get interrupted in verse 25. And this is where we get to the sort of the story and within the story. It's like an, an inception story, right? Like here uh, in verse 25, read it with me. It says, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Uh, so she's been chronic bleeding for 12 years, which is a long time. Uh, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but actually rather grew worse. So this woman with the bleeding problem, she was not only desperate, but she was, she was destitute. The word suffer in verse 26 is a really graphic word in the original Greek. It gives us this idea of, 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 of torture, of, of torment. I mean, even just the rest of the language that Mark uses to describe her situation sort of drives home the point for us that, that this is sort of an end of all hopes type of drastic situation for her. She's at the end of the line, at the end of the road. It says that she suffered under the care of many doctors and she spent all that she had on them. So now she's broke and destitute, and disease. She spent all her money on doctors who couldn't make her better and who actually made her worse. And it's helpful for us to understand that, you know, doctors back then, they didn't study pathology like they do these days. Like some doctors back then, like the physician Luke, who was a friend of Paul and the author of the Gospel of Luke, like Luke was pretty legit. Like there were some physicians, some doctors that were, had legit medical practices, but most doctors... Most doctors at this time were more like kind of superstitious witch doctors. In fact, one, one thing that, uh, you know, uh, old uh, first century literature tells us that one thing that they would commonly suggest for a woman with this type of condition is they would tell her to carry around a dried up quail egg, uh, a discolored quail egg in her linen pouch, and to also eat the dung of a mule every now and then to get better. So how's that for medical advice? So they basically told her, put an Easter egg in your purse and poop in your mouth. And like, no wonder she was broke and still no improvement, right? No wonder. 
And continue, can, re, read what goes on in, in, in verse 27. It says, now she, she, the reason she approached Jesus because she heard the reports about Jesus. She's desperate, but she heard the reports about Jesus. And so she came up, she snuck up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, then I will be made well. Now, where did she get that crazy idea? You see, back then there was this old wives' tale based on an Old Testament prophecy in Malachi that if you touch the prayer shawl, the fringes of the prayer shawl uh, that, that uh, the Messiah wore, which a prayer shawl is this garment that all rabbis wore, and so Jesus himself would be wearing this prayer shawl. And this, this old wives' tale said that if you touch the prayer shawl of the Messiah, then you would be healed. Whatever your sickness, whatever your disease, no matter how bad it is, you would be healed. That was the belief. And so she hears the rumors about Jesus, about his teaching, about his miracles. And she's like, I think this is the Messiah. I think this is the promised one. I know I'm not allowed to be around anyone. I know I'm not allowed to talk to a rabbi because of my condition. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try and sneak through there and just touch the edge of her, his garment. And you just got to put yourself in her shoes when you're picturing this scene. Put yourself in her shoes. Like she's been bleeding. For 12 years, for 12 years, this nonstop flow of blood. Now, that sounds uncomfortable, right? And not only would that be extremely uncomfortable and painful, but Old Testament laws in Leviticus declared her, because of this condition, ceremonially and ritually, under the Old Covenant, she would be considered unclean. Unclean. And we don't have categories here in, in the 21st century for the difference between clean and, and unclean. But back then, that means that, that, no, that you didn't come around a person like this. Remember the leper that we read about before? Like you don't come across, you don't come across an unclean person. You avoid the unclean per person. And so picture her situation here. That means that no one has touched her in 12 years. No one has sat with her. 12 years. No one has hugged her. No one has held her hand, said it's going to be okay. No one's prayed for her while laying their hands on her. She has not had physical skin-to-skin -skin -skin contact with another human being, likely, for those whole 12 years. 12 years is a lot of life. It's a lot of life. You guys remember the movie 12 Years a Slave? The story about that this free man, uh, this free black man in the uh, I think it's 1850s, who was kidnapped by by con men and sold into into slavery. Like I remember watching just the trailer for that movie and thinking, 12 years for this free man, 12 years—that's a long amount of life to lose out on. That's this woman. She suffered physically, emotionally, socially. You know what's worse than suffering? Suffering in isolation. Suffering when you're alone. She's not even allowed to be in the village, much less a crowd, much less talk to a Jewish rabbi. Yet here she is. No money, no community, no hope. And then she hears that Jesus is coming to town. The great 
healer gives her a glimmer of hope. And so she fights through the crowd to get to him. She creeps on up to him, pushing her way through the massive crowd and just to touch the edge of his clothing. And then read what happens in verse 29. It says, and immediately, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Right then, right there, she's healed and she's set free. And what she did in in reaching out to Jesus was, was an act of faith. She reached out to him. And in that instance, in this act of faith, she's healed. Read verse 30 with me. It says, then Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. And so the transforming power of God is unleashed in the life of this woman because she reached out in faith. And it says, immediately, uh, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And says she was terrified. Why was she terrified? Because remember, in her condition... The law did not allow her to touch anyone, much less a rabbi like Jesus. Early writing tells us that a woman who had a flow of blood like this, like she wasn't even allowed to speak closely to another person because her breath might infect that person. That was the belief. And so that's how intense this scene is. When when Jesus calls out, who touched me? She's not supposed to be there. She's broken 50 rules just to get to Jesus. She's already been a social outcast. She hasn't had the love, the acceptance, the affection of a human being in 12 years. And yet she pushes to the center of the crowd to get to Jesus, and Jesus calls her out. He says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? And she's afraid. She's terrified, and then she spills the beans. She tells the whole truth, and look at how Jesus responds to her in verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, How comforting must those words have been to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, here's what I want you to see uh, here. Jesus, he could have just let this woman sort of scamper away to heal, never to be seen or, or heard from again. He didn't have to speak to her. He didn't have to call her out. So why did he do that? Why why did Jesus seek her out? Why did he make such a big commotion about her touching his garment? I mean, he's on the way to Jairus' house to treat a girl who's on her literal deathbed. Why stop now? Why stop at all? And why stop for this woman, for this unclean, untouchable woman? And why call her out like this? You see, it's because... Jesus wanted this woman to have more than just physical healing. He wanted her to receive healing for her soul. He says, you know, he's basically saying, look, it wasn't my prayer shawl that made you well. It was your faith. It was your faith. And and she needed to hear that. She needed 
to, to hear that. And in, in saying this, Jesus is giving her more than what she wants. He's addressing her deepest need. She's got this weird superstitious understanding of Jesus' healing power. Like she thinks in superstition that if she just, just a touch would heal her. That's what she believed. That was her assumption. If I just touch him, then I'll be healed. She believed that old superstitious wives tale. And Jesus here says, no, it's not the touch. It's, it's, it's faith. That's what healed you. Faith is what healed you. That's the difference between a superstitious person who had their body healed and a disciple who has their life transformed. What you need primarily isn't physical touch, but spiritual faith. That's what Jesus wants to get across to her. He's saying, look, my kingdom is not about having your needs met. It's not about having your physical or your financial needs met. It's about having a life-transforming relationship with the living God. It's about walking in faith. And he's telling her, look, that's what you truly came for. That's what you truly come for. And that's what faith is all about. It's an ongoing reaching out in faith to Jesus that he's the one who can provide the hope that we need, the longing that we need. True faith recognizes the real brokenness inside all of us. It embraces our desperate ongoing need for grace and it runs to Jesus who is our ongoing assurance of grace. You see, the center of Christianity, the center of the gospel, the, the center of historic Christian teaching is not a superstitious moment or an emotional, personal experience. It's the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is giving her. He's giving himself. He says, have a relationship with me by faith. Faith by itself doesn't save you. But faith is only as good as the object that we have faith in. Does that make sense? Faith alone doesn't save you. Faith is only as good as its object. And this woman has placed her faith in the right object, in the right person. And Jesus says, nothing can stop you now. Walk with me in faith. She is free now, he declares, to go in peace. That word peace is a holistic peace, a spiritual peace. Go now in faith. Go in peace to walk as a person who has been made new from the inside out. What about you? What about us this morning? What about you? What is getting in the way of your faith? What hard circumstance is getting in the way of a true and vibrant relationship of faith with the living God? Are you pressing through the mob? Are you saying there is no other hope in life or in death than Jesus Christ, my Redeemer? Place your faith in the only one who is worthy of it even when it doesn't make sense, and even when it costs you everything. And that leads us to our third and final point. I want us to see the unexpectedness or the unexpected nature of faith in Jesus. The unexpected nature of faith in Jesus. Read verse 35 with me. 
It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, this is Jairus' house, some who said, and I want you to let these words sink in. They said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Which is like, ugh, your daughter is dead. I want you to try and feel what Jairus is feeling right there. Like who, whoever brought this news had no tact and should probably get fired. Like Jairus is waiting while Jesus serves this woman. He's, Jairus is praying probably with expectant hope for his little girl that she would make it. And then someone comes along and says, hey, your daughter is dead. So you, you can stop bothering Jesus. They say that, that burying a child is one of the most excruciating things that a human could ever experience. I can't imagine that. I know there's some in this room who've, who've experienced that. Like I can't imagine just the, the, the pain associated with that. And, 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 and Jairus, in this moment, like he's not even there at his little, little girl's bedside. He's not there to hold her hand, to bawl his eyes out. Like when he left, she was on her deathbed and he, 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 he wasn't there to hold her, her hand when she passed, to, to tell her how, how proud he is of her, how much joy that she brought him. He wasn't by her side when he got this news only because he was out trying to save her. Traumatizing experience for him. And Jesus says then in verse 36, we see, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, in the middle of this pain, he says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. You see, this is a bold call to faith. In the midst of just this trauma, in the midst of the drama of this moment, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Don't fear, but believe. Like, How many of you need to answer Jesus' bold call to faith like that? A situation that is probably not as traumatizing as Jairus's, but is still like heartbreaking, still heart-wrenching nonetheless. Like, What is an area of your life that you're just kind of clawing at Trying to, trying to make sense of it, where you're hurt, you're burned, you're confused, you're tired, you're angry, you're waiting, you're longing, and then you hear the bold call to faith from Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. Don't be afraid, but believe. Read what happens next in verse 37. It says, Jesus then allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? You see, in first century culture, you would actually hire paid mourners to come alongside your family uh, to mourn uh, when, when somebody died. I mean, talk about the worst job, right? Like, 
you, you, they would pay people who would be professional, paid mourners. And on the funeral was always on the same day of death. And so the, these professional mourners, they were loud. They were on, that was part of their job description, to be loud, to wail, to make a point to everybody in the community, in the village, that somebody has died. That's why they were hired to do this. So they, were like, they would throw dirt in the air. They would be ripping their clothes off and lament. Uh, and that's the situation. That's the commotion going on. And Jesus is calling him out. He says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And then look at what he says, uh, the rest of verse 39. He says, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And then they mock him. The text says they mock him. Look at verse 40. It says they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. And then taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means literally little girl. It's an endearing term. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, rise. As an endearing term, little girl. It's almost like he's saying, look, baby girl, I want you to get up. I want you to arise. Nothing superstitious going on here. Nothing magical. Nothing exciting. No fanfare. Just holding her hand and using common words, small, endearing, common words, and she rises. Look at verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with, what does it say? Amazement. No kidding, right? They were overcome with amazement. And look, we see an important quality in Jesus here. We see an important quality in Jesus in these last few verses. Remember, Jesus is in a world-altering mission. He's on a mission to bring and to declare and to announce the in-breaking kingdom of God, to reconcile sinners to the Father, to renew all things and to restore the cosmos. Yet he stoops down at the bedside of a little girl to touch her little hand. We see here that there are no details too small for the Redeemer's hands. There's no situation, no detail, no pain too small for the Redeemer's hands. And we see then that Jairus, he went from hopefulness when he came to Jesus, to heartbreak when he got the news of his daughter, to hope like he's never seen before. Hope that is overcome with amazement. And when you look back at the unexpected and sometimes inconvenient timing of God, you see a glimpse of this where you've called out to him where you've asked for healing, where you've asked for help, for deliverance, and it just doesn't seem to come. Jesus wants you to know the promise from this text. Don't be afraid, but believe. The promise from this text is that there's a greater hope on the horizon. There's a hope of final resurrection to come. And that is what Mark wants to see layered into sort of this inception sandwich of a text. He wants us to see that unrivaled hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. A hope that makes you overcome with amazement. 
a hope that has no parallel. And he actually uses clear parallels to drive this point home. Look at the stories. I mean, both of these stories, you got two women that need to be healed. One is young and the other is old. Both are unclean and untouchable. The woman because of her bleeding, the child because she's a corpse. And both are made well again by Jesus. Both are made well by faith. And the woman is bleeding and diseased for 12 years, and the child is how old? She's 12 years old. I mean, make no mistake about that. Mark wants us to connect these two stories. He's there's a reason they go together. There's a reason that he uses this literary device, these parallels. Mark wants to drive this point home that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the source of life and of health. He is the resurrection and the life. You see, ultimately the needs that Jesus met here in this girl and in this woman, ultimately the needs that Jesus met point to a greater human need that they have. It points to a greater human need that they all have. Sickness and death can all be traced back to what? To sin. You see, they came into the world through sin. And so Jesus's miracles in this text, they point to a greater miracle to come. They aren't the ultimate point. These miracles aren't the ultimate point. They actually point to that ultimate point and to the decisive moment in all of human redemptive history when he, Jesus, would conquer sin, would conquer evil, would conquer death on a cross, not on a boat, not on a shore, but on the cross of Calvary. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we'll read about that. We'll see it. We'll read about how Jesus, the sinless one, will one day hang on that cross in our place for our sins. He's going to bleed and be socially cast out like the woman in this text. And three days later, he would rise from death just like the little girl in this text. And that resurrection the resurrection of Jesus would be the first of many final resurrections. That resurrection to come from Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus will secure lasting hope for all of us, enduring hope for all of us, not just in life, but in death too. Do you trust him? Do you reach out to him? Do you trust him? Do you place your faith in him? He is worthy of your faith. In closing, and as we prepare to take communion, I want us to look at the last verse in our text, in verse 43. Jesus tells them to get the girl something to eat. Read it. It says, he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is a fascinating text, right? I mean, Jesus just rose her from the dead. He, he could have he rose her without the pangs of hunger, right? He could have he rose her with a full, satisfied belly. But he rose her and then immediately calls them to get her something to eat. And one of the fascinating things in the Gospel of Mark is that you, we see that eating, feasting, and drinking is a dominant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark and really throughout the, the rest of the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. Here we see that Jesus restored this little girl not just to new life, 
but to, but to fellowship at the table. You see, salvation in Jesus is not just a personal experience. It's not. Jesus doesn't just save us as individuals to himself. I mean, he certainly does that, but he saves us into a community. Salvation in Jesus isn't just about a personal experience. It's about us being bought into a family, adopted into a family, into a new community. It's membership in an eternal family. And if Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you have fellowship at that table. You have fellowship at that everlasting table. That is why a church cannot be substituted with a podcast or a live stream. That's why we sit under the word of God together. That's why we sing together. That's why we encourage one another together. That's why we take communion together. The scriptures tell us that as we take the elements of communion, it's a way that we share a spiritual meal as a family for those of us who are believers in Christ. And it's a way that we not just receive uh, the, 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 the benefits of being a Christian and hearing the word on, on Sunday, but it's a way for us to participate together. So that's why we take communion every week here at King's Cross because we're called to be a family together, to, to not just feed upon the word together, but to feast upon the gospel together. And that's what we're doing in communion. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.